Hello everybody and welcome to this episode of Activist Lawyer. I'm joined here in the studio with Jack. Hello everyone. Hi. Um, and we are delighted to have Colin Yeo joining us today. Hello Colin. Hello, thanks very much for having me on. Not at all. So just an introduction. Colin is a barrister at the Garden Court Chambers in London, specialising in immigration, asylum and nationality law. In 2020, he published Welcome to Britain, Fixing Our Broken Immigration System, a book charting and examining immigration policy over the last 30 years <laughs> and setting out some ideas for how to start putting things right. Colin also manages the Free Movement blog, immigration blog, freemovement.org.uk, which he founded in 2007. Before becoming a barrister, he worked for two charities, the Immigration Advisory Service and the Refugee Legal Service. Thank you again so much for joining us, Colin. Um, so I suppose we'll start yeah. with, with you. <laughs> and um, if you could share a little bit with our listeners about your background, your career journey to becoming a barrister and perhaps, you know, the area that you work in as well. Yeah, sure. So um, I studied history originally at university rather than law and then did the um, the conversion course, which is, uh, I remember as being a pretty horrendous experience. Kind of, you know, I didn't do a law degree because it didn't sound that interesting. And, and, and the conversion course, like a law degree with all the interesting bits left out. So it was, uh, it was, it was quite, quite hard work. Um, and then, yeah, I'm, like many, I think, I, I didn't get pupillage at, at first asking. I, I, I remember applying to all these sort of top like public law sets and things like that. And I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't come from a family of lawyers. Um, so I, I was looking for a job, found um, found this charity that was um, that was recruiting. They were pretty desperate for people. They, they must have been because they, they took me on. And um, my first job was, well, my first job was advising asylum seekers at um, the Oakington Barracks near Cambridge. So, it, it, you know, with the barracks back in the news as, as a way of, um, accommodating asylum seekers in the UK, that it sort of feels a bit like we've gone full circles. So that was in, um, that must be May 2000, I think it, it, it was when I started. And, you know, over sort of 20 years, we've gone through all sorts of experiments with different things and we're kind of back where, back where I started at least. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, 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 I sort of worked very happily for, for a couple of charities for five or six years and then eventually came to the bar. Excellent, excellent. And why did you choose immigration and asylum law to, to specialise in now? I mean, it's a really difficult, complex, well, that's me. Yeah, that's that's you know, my opinion and your opinion. Area of law. Complex, I mean, yeah. was it, you know, did you get a p- real passion for it? Or do you think people have to have a passion to work in that area? It's a, it's a really difficult question to answer. And in some ways, it was just by accident. So I was looking for rights-based work of some sort, and I thought that might end up being employment law or something like that. I certainly, I, uh, 20 years ago, I don't rem- remember there being any options to study immigration law that I was aware of. And no. you know, going the conversion course route, you know, you're stuck on these kind of core subjects. You don't get the chance to do anything no. interesting or optional modules or anything like that. So I, I didn't really know anything about immigration law when, when the Immigration Advisory Service took, took me on to, to start advising. I had a, mm-hmm. a two-week training course and then let loose on people. Um, but I found that I really loved it. And, and I really liked working with those clients. And then when I had a chance later to, to change. So when I went to the bar, I was at a, a chambers, which is now closed, called Renaissance. Mm-hmm. And they mainly did family work, actually. Okay. And so I was doing a lot of family work as part of my pupillage. And then when I was a, a, a tenant, um, and eventually I sort of turned around to the clerks and just said, look, I, I don't want to do that anymore. Um, I, I, I just want to focus on, on immigration and asylum stuff again. Um, so I sort of you know, fell into it, mm-hmm. found that I enjoyed it, uh, enjoyed the complexity, actually, in, yeah. in, in a way. 
Um, and then when I had a chance, I, I kind of stayed. So Colin, as Sarah said before, um, you're the founder of freemovement.org. Um, for anyone that's listening, this is an invaluable resource for practitioners. We pay personally a small fee, uh, subscription fee, and have access to articles, forums, and learning resources. And it's really the first tab that we open when we come in uh, on our work computer. So how did that idea come about and how do you even get something like that started? Well, so I started it in 2007. I'd already played around a little bit with a with a blog while I was doing my pupillage because strangely, I, I had a I had a very odd pupillage actually. There was, there was long periods where I wasn't really doing very much. Um, so I was sort of bored out of my brains. And I'd set up this uh, kind of experiment with the software a little bit and it was, it was all quite straightforward really. And I just started this, um, this I, I gave up the pupillage thing and started doing an immigration law one um, because I wanted to think things through a bit and it was a way of trying to force myself to stay up to date even though a lot of my work was family law at that time because it's, it's really hard to be a part-time immigration practitioner there's just so much going on yeah. that keeping on top of things is really hard and so when I started I was just doing maybe sort of one a week one a fortnight of these these blog posts um, and then I sort of learned gradually how to do it better so there were no pictures to start with for example and then I thought oh actually maybe pictures would make it a bit easier to read and less less awful on the screen <laughs> and and it kind of it, it just kind of grew and i sort of experimented with different things and then yeah. eventually I, I think it must have been 2012 mm -hmm. i put my name on it so it had been anonymous mm -hmm. until then oh really and oh, then eventually yeah i don't know but i, I, I told somebody i'm not going to say who it was i told somebody it was me and they're right gossip and i think no a lot way. of people that actually found <laughs> out but I, it didn't actually have my name on it in, in, until i think about 2012 yeah. um and then um yeah, I, I, I sort of eventually realised that I was spending really a bit too long on it. Okay. And although blogging's a really good way of kind of raising your profile and things, and it wasn't that wasn't why I'd done it to start with. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's quite hard to pin down a direct benefit to your practice as a barrister, and particularly back then, kind of blogging seemed like a slightly disreputable activity. I think yeah. it's a bit more mainstream now, um, and so the time that I was putting into it. It wasn't easy to justify by a kind of career benefits or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And I yeah, had a young family and eventually I thought, I just can't do this without it generating some income, basically. Uh -huh. I'm putting too much time and energy into this. Yeah. And so I sort of started coming up with different ways of having a, a sort of paying membership element mm -hmm. to it. Well, it's fantastic. And you've got, a, I suppose, a group of um, experts, immigration experts who contribute to it. But I think it's written in a very relatable way as well. It kind of cuts through all of the complexity. And I think that's mm. why it appeals to us. It's a, it's a quick resource that we can go to to explain any changes in the law. And there's always a little bit of tongue in cheek. Um, with with some of the articles, which also adds a little bit of humour into yeah. into the complexity of immigration, so it's fantastic. And the other thing which we mentioned was your book, Welcome to Britain, which I read. I have the hardback copy, but I know the paperback version is out on the seventeenth of March, isn't it? This this month. Yeah, I just literally yesterday the the publisher sent me my my author's box of I can't I haven't <laughs> even opened it properly. I've I've, look, I've opened the top and I've looked in, but I don't know how many they've sent me. I think it's ten or twenty. Um, it's really exciting. It's, it's really, really like exciting. The, the, so that's book that you've written. St. Patrick's Day release. So what, I mean, I've read the book and it's fantastic, but what was the feedback? I mean, who was your audience? Was it practitioners or, or could anybody benefit from reading the book in terms of, you know, its content? It's not, it's not a textbook in any way, shape mm -hmm. or form. So it's not aimed at practitioners yeah. 
to kind of teach them immigration law as such. And, and practitioners, hopefully they'd learn something yeah. reading it, but it's more about the kind of policy. And mm-hmm. the point of writing it for me was as much to, I, I like starting the blog in a way, to force myself to sort of think things through, mm-hmm. because um, I, I never really had with the blog, actually. It'd become this kind of, you know, there's such a sort of fire hose of yeah. stuff going on in the world of immigration and asylum. But it, I hadn't had the chance that I'd hoped when I started it to kind of stand back from things and, mm-hmm. and really think about it a bit. And the book was a, a, a sort of chance to force myself to do that, basically. So it's it's aimed at members of the public and policymakers, mm-hmm. really, um, and also to a significant extent at myself to try and mm-hmm. you know develop my own thinking so that I can try and communicate things a bit better. Um, so just this morning, I've, I've, I've had to rush it slightly, actually, to, to, to finish in time to, to speak to you. I've just been putting out a briefing on the <laughs> asylum system um, in, in about 20 charts or something. I love yeah. charts. Uh, there's a few charts in the book as well. Not too visual, many, but there's a few. A visual person. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's kind of, I, I feel much better informed now, having actually spent the time researching and writing it. Um, and, you know, my hope is that that, that will help to communicate what's wrong with the immigration system to more people um, and, and hopefully lead to positive reforms. Hopefully. Well, we're all better informed after having read it. And just on that point, I mean, I guess the government in place now, is it 12 years they've been, the the Conservative government? And um, I mean, immigration has really been one of the top priorities in their mandate and previous governments as well would have spoken about this firm but fair approach and the system is broken and they tried to fix it. How can we fix the immigration system in your in your humble opinion? I know that's a big, big question, but um, what is the solution? Because it's it goes back and forth and we're still in a very difficult place. Well, I think the first thing to do is to work out what what we want to achieve mm-hmm. um, and, and then and then get serious about it, which is sort of slightly glib answer. But a lot of the policy that we see is just to my mind, it's just theatre, really. Mm-hmm. So. Um, the, the briefing I was putting out this morning, for example, you know, only just over 200 asylum seekers were removed from the UK in 2021. So you get all this tough talk from from the government, but when it comes to actually implementing that stuff, they just can't and don't do it. And it's not that I really want to see loads more asylum seekers removed or anything like that. But there's this real mm-hmm. mismatch yes. between what they say and what they do, mm-hmm. um, because it's it's about kind of political communications for them rather than actual human beings um, who, who are profoundly affected by the system. And the, the kind of, the, the big idea, which is, is borrowed, stolen, plagiarized from, from, from somebody else in, in, in the United States, a guy called um, Hiroshi Matamura, is, is that you should treat migrants more like they are potential citizens, basically. Because once they're into a country, it's really hard to remove them, but the good or ill, and lots of people want to send them home and all this kind of mm-hmm. thing. It's really hard to do that. It's really brutal. Um, you know, it's it's violence when, when it comes down to it to, yeah. to remove people, to detain them, dawn raids, and so on. And so once people are in, they're here to stay, whether they get status in the short term mm-hmm. through winning their asylum case, although you know, the waiting time for asylum case is mm-hmm. huge at the moment, or in the longer term because they don't get removed and they eventually find some way to regularize their status. Mm-hmm. So treating people much better from the outset and, and acknowledging from the start that they're going to be here to stay, to be part of our society, mm-hmm. I think would be you know, a real mind, mindset shift that would, would, would cause people to approach their mm-hmm. policy in a different way. That, that's 
that, yeah. that's my that's my point of view. And not create a hostile environment, which is obviously a way that, that the government tackles this and perhaps makes it more difficult. I mean, even this week, you know about home office fees are absolutely gosh, incredible to get your head around how much it costs for people to stay here. And I think the general public aren't aware of that. You know, people having to renew their leave, for example, every two and a half years, they have no recourse to public funds. They work two or three jobs just in order to pay their home office fees for their family. That in itself is a real hostile way to live, you know, until they eventually become... It's like a vicious cycle. It really is. But I worked in Ireland for so many years and it was such a different jurisdiction, you know, even in terms of fees. But just on that, um, I I spoke to some of our fellow practitioners who know I'm speaking with you today. And the big issue in Northern Ireland that we're talking about is legal aid and legal aid fees in particular for immigration lawyers. It's really at crisis stage. I know it's across the UK, but I can only speak for practitioners here that we are completely overwhelmed and stretched and it's because there are simply not enough people working in this area and one of the reasons for that that people are pointing out is the the extraordinarily poor legal aid system that haven't increased that the fees have not gone up for years for decades in some cases depending on the case so do you see that as maybe a way of does that need to be reviewed i guess your answer is yes but <laughs> how important is that <laughs> i'm not going to say no to that but it's no. similar in england and wales you've yeah. got this fixed fee system where the fees um not only have they not gone up but they're actually cut in 2012 um mm. So, you know, we're actually getting paid less than we were um, in real, you know, not just in real terms, but in, in kind of, you know, nominal pounds and pence than, than we were previously. But I, and I think a lot of immigration lawyers, like other social welfare lawyers, to be fair, want to do themselves out of work. They, they want to be out of business, which, which you know, I, I'd like the immigration system to be much simpler so that people didn't need my help yeah. um, and so that I didn't have as much to do. And that would be a really useful <laughs> reform. But, you know, we really don't see that coming from the government at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they, there's been some talk about simplification and so on, but it's just, you know, they, they talk, talk, they don't walk, walk. Mm-hmm. So one, I mean, there's so much going on in immigration, I suppose, in the p- past few years, you and, and other authors, and this covered Windrush and, of course, the hostile environment in full. But we're at the nationality and borders bill stage. And again, it's it's going through even very, impo- very important changes at the moment. Could you bring us up to speed in terms of what's happening? I know some good news came out of the House of Lords over the past couple of days. Where are we with that? We've spoken about it several times before in this mm-hmm. podcast, so hopefully readers are familiar with it or listening. Yeah, so and the House of Lords has taken out some of the, I think, some of the worst bits of the legislation. The kind of the idea that refugees have to claim asylum in the first safe country they they reach, and they'll be punished if they come to the UK if they haven't done that. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I'm, and this is a bit optimistic, quite frankly, but I would hope that what's going on in Ukraine at the moment would show to people, to the general public, that that's safe. Uh, you know, first safe country mm-hmm. principle isn't a good one. Nope. It, you know, why should they stay in Poland or Moldova? Why can't they move on to other places mm-hmm. when those countries get overwhelmed and so on? And of course, you know, once you establish that, once people can see that, then you hope to widen it out to other nationalities and other refugee crises as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so those bits have been taken out by the House of Lords, where, but it goes back to the Commons. They may well put yeah, it back in, they may the force process. it through in its original shape, but we just don't really know what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. And I suppose we're seeing now with the crisis in the Ukraine escalate, I mean, it's probably pointless at this stage to discuss specifics in terms of immigration because daily things are changing in terms of law and policy coming out of the Home Office. But um, 
it's clear that the UK acted very differently than other member states. And I mean, I'm thinking about 10 minutes down the road from here where we are in Uri in Ireland. I mean, people are getting, you know, uh, the concession is 90 days free, um, 90 days visa free um, permission to remain in the country and then they can regularise their status. The UK clearly did not act as swiftly as Ireland and other member states. Um, Why do you think this is? And I mean, do you think they're going to go further? I mean, they, they already have essentially, but what has been the kind of pushback from the government, do you think? And what can they do to improve this situation for Ukrainian nationals? Well, and the situation in a lot of EU countries was a bit different because they didn't have a visa requirement for Ukrainians in the first place. Okay. So, you know, it would have been pretty extraordinary to have imposed a visa requirement yeah. in those circumstances. Sure. Whereas the UK did have a visa requirement, but it just hasn't lifted it in the okay. same way that Ireland, for example, did. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the UK government is clearly doing just absolutely as little as they really humanly can. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, what, what, what's been announced so far is essentially family members of British citizens, um, hopefully from today, also family members of settled Ukrainian nationals in the UK as well. Okay. Um, but it's been it's been like getting blood out of the stone. Yes. The, the kind of the, the the concessions have been very very grudgingly given, and it will help some people. What's already been announced, but but not very many. And if you it's a chance to stand in solidarity, not just with the Ukrainians, but also with other EU member states. And you know the UK wants to reset its refugee policy with the EU. It wants a return arrangement. You know, just kind of effectively putting two fingers up at the rest of you know the rest of Europe and saying we're not we're not helping doesn't seem like a very long-term clever strategy to me but, no and it's it's yeah. extraordinary what we're witnessing and what about then non-ukrainian nationals who are fleeing the war like refugees in ukraine we don't really hear a whole lot about how they're going to be treated the focus is on here it's on british citizens and their ukraine family members but has there been discussion around people who are in need of protection that cannot go back to their own country, for example? And there's, there's been nothing on that from the UK government so far. And I imagine that, you know, so we're, as you said, we're in very early days of mm-hmm. this situation at the moment. Um, but we can expect that people, some people probably will want to try and reach the UK. And mm-hmm. you know, we will see those third country nationals who were resident in Ukraine. I, I imagine a lot of them will uh, you know, foreign students, for example, will want to go back to their home countries, but yeah. they, you know, they'll experience awful things. They'll just want to go home. Yeah. But there will be others who were refugees or, or, or whatever, for some other reason in Ukraine who, who can't do that and they'll be looking for somewhere else to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the Nationality and Borders Bill means that they'll be treated very harshly um, if, if they try to come to the UK. Yeah, I mean, I heard Lise Doucette, the BBC reporter this morning, referring to scenes in Ukraine, reminding her of her time reporting in Aleppo, which was really not that long ago. And of course, the Afghanistan issue is still ongoing. They're still producing thousands of refugees and people who need protection. So do you think in one way this crisis and the war in the Ukraine has drawn attention to the plight of refugees in general and asylum seekers, no matter where they're from? Or do you think we've created a kind of a two-tier system in terms of international protection for all asylum seekers? Because we do know that they have been treated very very differently i think um i I think this is really complicated and um for for what it's worth my own view is that you know i've seen a lot of people calling out double standards and essentially racism let's call a spade a spade um in being generous towards ukrainians but not to others i'm not sure that's necessarily a really helpful response at this point in time if people are feeling generous towards ukrainians that's something to be welcomed. You know, there is a huge humanitarian crisis now. And then from that base where people do feel that kind of compassion and empathy, 
let's build out from that and, and show that actually they, you know, we should also be treating others in the same way as well, rather than sort of pointing fingers and accusing people of double standards. So I, I kind of, I, I know that this is a really complicated issue. That's kind of mm-hmm. just where I'm at at this point in the crisis, personally. Yeah, no, I agree. And I'm hopeful that that would yeah, be I the case. I think that's a good way to look at it, to use it this as a base to how we should treat everyone else, not as a as a way to, you know, put people mm-hmm. down for treating Ukrainians with a maybe higher level um, of support, but yeah. maybe use that as go, right, we need to do this from now on. It's just drawing public awareness yeah, to, yeah, to the yeah. issue as well. So, Colin, we have a lot of aspiring lawyers and fellow immigration practitioners who will really, really enjoy this episode. So what advice would you give to aspiring lawyers who would like to follow in, in your footsteps down, down the immigration route? <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I think it, it is harder to do it now than it yeah. was when I did it. I, I feel very lucky when I look back and just think, uh, you know, I, I was very lucky, basically. There was um, there were charities out there that were taking on people and training them up, and they just don't exist anymore. They were, mm. um, their funding was cut by the government, and they eventually had to close. Um, so, But it, it is a very worthwhile um, field of work and the, one of the big attractions for me has always been that I I can almost always find something to admire in my clients and you know, that's not necessarily a very loyally way of thinking quite frankly, you know, lawyers often have to represent people that they don't particularly admire and there's a lot of controversy at the moment around mm-hmm. you know, London lawyers <laughs> representing you know, Russian oligarchs and things like that but you know, just personally speaking, it, that, that's one of the attractions of immigration law for me, and um, um, it's it, it's worthwhile. It's complicated, but there's kind of there's uh, that adds interest if you've got a certain way of looking at, at, at things, I guess. Yeah. Um, and you can make a really big difference to people's lives as well, um, whether it's asylum cases or or immigration cases, family immigration in particular. Absolutely, and just finally question we ask all of our, our guests because of the nature of our podcast activism what does it mean to you and how can we use the law I guess as a tool to make effective change <laughs> I don't know how many of your previous guests have taken a, a similar line to this but I, I am a little bit skeptical these days about using the law as a tool for social change and I'm a bit skeptical of strategic litigation which sometimes works but quite often doesn't and, and can make things can make things worse sometimes if done badly or or if it loses um so yeah i i'm i'm a little bit skeptical but i it's not that we shouldn't be doing it and obviously yeah. we all want to help not just our individual clients but also our client base and mm-hmm. other clients like them and we don't want them to have to go through the same thing that that others have um but i think i i'd say that it's not just about the law it's also about politics and about campaigning, um, and it's important not to lose sight of the the, the crucial role that kind of building a, a level of public support can play, because yeah. that's what politicians respond to ultimately. Yeah. Um, so there's a kind of long-term thing going on here. That's so true. Really interesting response. Yep. Um, well, look, thank you very much for joining us. I'm just going to mention again that the paperback version of your book is out on the 17th of March, and I would highly recommend reading it. Um, and where, where is it available from? How, how can people access the book? Is it through Free Movement I, as well? Uh, it's, well, we won't be selling it through Free Movement. It, it, yeah, you can get it from um, a well-known internet um, retailer okay. whose owner has amusingly shaped rockets. I'm not, I'm not going to name them <laughs> directly. Um, or, 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 you know, the, the publishers bite back, um, yeah. sell it directly, or you can order it into your friendly local bookshop. Thank you. That is fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.